Support comes from Empower Missouri, providing in-person and virtual training to become an advocate for Missourians living in poverty. Registration for Empower Missouri's March 27th Advocacy Day is at empowermissouri.org WOA. Republican Ken Waller has had a long and storied history in Jefferson County politics. He served as county treasurer, county executive, and county clerk before being elected last year to the Missouri House. And now the Republican from Herculaneum is reflecting on his first year in the Missouri General Assembly on the latest episode of Politically Speaking. He also talks about a number of issues that local election officials are dealing with, including the fact that they no longer have to administer next year's presidential primary. Let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, the definitive show about Missouri politics. My promise to St. Louis was that I would do the absolute most for each and every person, starting with those who have the very least. What I wanted to do was look and see what other states are doing. We have to be willing to change those laws that they are balanced and they affect everybody equal. As somebody that grew up in the St. Louis area, North St. Louis County, I didn't know any lawyers growing up. We gotta find long-term solutions to make government better, but also to be able to provide services to people. I don't wanna leave that federal money that we've been leaving all these years on the table. We need to be spending this money to take care of Missourians. I thought we accomplished a lot this year, but a lot more needs to be done. And welcome to Politically Speaking. I'm your host, St. Louis Public Radio political correspondent Jason Rosenbaum, joining us from mid-Missouri. She covers all things state government and state politics for St. Louis Public Radio. Sarah Kellogg. And joining us for the first time ever, he is a state representative, but more importantly, he is a Jeffco legend. Ken Waller, State Representative, District 114. Thanks for being. Uh, letting me be on the show. We are super excited to have you on. Can um, I, you said legend. I hope my wife's listening or will hear this show because she probably would differ about that. But I appreciate the uh, kudos. Well, well, before we ask you about your background and some of the big issues, can you just let our listeners know what the boundaries of your district are? Main balance of your district is uh, four unincorporated cities of Festus, Crystal City, Herculaneum, and Peevely. And then for anybody that lives in the Jefferson County area, that, that general area, Highway Z, that goes from Peavely to Hillsboro um, uh, is part of the district, which is unincorporated. Does go up a little bit further north uh, to Barnhart, but just a small little part of Barnhart's in the district. But it's mainly four cities. So tell us a little bit about yourself and what you were doing before you got involved in electoral politics. Before I got involved in electoral politics? Yes. Okay, so for many years I sold insurance. Um, always had a niche to um, want to be in politics. I graduated from Umsel, a uh, great school, uh, give them a big plug, and uh, got my public administration degree. Uh, thought eventually that I would be maybe like a city manager, city administrator, but I wound up getting a job uh, selling insurance for an agent with State Farm, and then I wound up having my own shelter agency. Um, got into politics kind of just crazy. Uh, my neighbor was the county treasurer, he was an older gentleman, had got not diagnosed with some kind of condition. It wasn't like life-threatening, but he was going to retire. And he said, hey, you ought to run. And, 
you know, back then it was hard to to win as a Republican, and he was a Democrat. And I said, well, if I ever ran, I'd probably run as a Republican. I'm a little bit more conservative, and not that Democrats were bad, but I just think that's where I line my political views. And he goes, well, you know, things are changing, you know. They'll make a long story short, that was 2004. And I ran uh, in a primary and the general, and I wound up winning and became the county treasurer. A few years later, I lost an election, which was my first election, that I, uh, an only election I lost for re-election. That was the year of 2008. And then just on another women of prayer and a couple of encouraging people, decided to run for county executive, the first county executive in our county in 2010. And lo and behold, I won that, and I've been in government ever since. So you mentioned that you've had stints in Jefferson County government, mm-hmm. and, and you were also county clerk from mm-hmm. 2018 to mm-hmm. 2022. Yes. What did you learn from that experience? The whole experience or just the clerk experience? No, the whole experience in uh, Jeffco County government. You know, I mean, it takes a lot of things and a lot of patience to get things done. Uh, people have different viewpoints. When you're dealing, you know, people say, well, you're a Republican or a Democrat, and, you know, if your party is this, everything should go good. Well, in county government, that's not really the way it works. I mean, at the time, we had six out of seven positions on the, on the county council, and there was a lot of things that we disagreed upon. I think that had a lot to do with being more, you know, some areas are more rural, Jason, and others were more urban. You know, Arnold and areas like that, Festus Crystal City, they were more urbanized. And... You know, High Ridge, Cedar Hill, Dittmer, you know, those towns, they were unincorporated. And I think that was the rub every time you decided to do something, you had that difference of of, of philosophy. Do you think that the rest of the region's leaders actually listen to Jefferson County's opinion on major issues? Or do you feel like, especially like when you were county executive, that you were kind of an afterthought when you had regional discussions on things? That's a great question to ask. I'll tell you where I think it, 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 I think initially, I don't think they really cared and listened to us, but I was very fortunate and, and built, built some good relationships on the East-West Gateway Board of uh, Government and actually got to serve as a vice chair and chair, I think it was 15 and 16. So I think that started the, the conversation since then. County Executive Gannon has served a term, I think the same thing as the, as the vice vice chair and the chair. So I think they're starting to listen to us a whole lot more. And, you know, we're the county just below St. Louis. So we're the one where growth is going to occur, just like it did out in St. Charles County 10, 15 years ago. What prompted you to make the move from the county area to the state legislature? Great question, Sarah. Um, You know, I'd always wanted to go to Jeff City. I mean, I'd been up there many, many, many times, probably hundreds of times lobbying on different things and and going up there and, you know, and interacting with my legislators. And there was just something about Jeff City. I know it sounds crazy. People say, why would you want to go up there and spend time away from your family? It was just something I wanted to do. And so, you know, I I looked at... uh, you know, the position of, of, of state rep that wound up being an open seat because uh, Becky Ruth, who had been there for a few years, got an appointment from the governor. And uh, not, not that she or anyone else came to me, but they said, we need a good person. There's a lot of development in that district, port development along the river in Herculaneum. And there was a new thing called James Hardy going in Crystal City. So a lot of good things happening. And so they wanted somebody up there that, that would be a good representative of that district. And so... After much uh, discussion with my wife, uh, looking at our finances and praying about it, I wound up just making the making the plunge, and uh, it well, it's been last year, and, and successfully won my primary and my general election, and I'm I'm pretty happy about it. 
You went from being the chief executive of a fast-growing county to one of 163 members of the House. It's often been said that executive leaders have difficulty transitioning into the legislative branch. Has there been some growing pains for you? You know, I went in with, uh, you know, my eyes wide open. I've been doing this for almost 20 years, Sarah. So, you know, I realized the differences, and I never had been on a legislative end. So the first year I went up there, I just wanted to learn everything I could and meet as many people and talk to them on, on both sides of the aisle, too. I mean, I've, I've got to have some good relationships with some people on on Democratic side, especially in committee hearings. So, you know, uh, it, it, some people say, well, you had to be a big adjustment. It really wasn't. I was ready to, to try something on a legislative side. And yeah, sometimes it's frustrating on certain votes or the way the Senate acted this year and different things that happened. But ultimately, my job was to represent the people in my district, of which I've lived in that district for 61 years. So, you know, I, I thought it's time to give back to my community in a smaller sense. And I think that's why the transition was much simpler. What has been the most surprising thing that you've encountered as a state legislator so far? Just the way things are done and, uh, you know, the, the the process and how it how it how it happens. And then, you know, how this bill has to be for a committee and then it's got to come out of executive committee and then it's got to be voted on and debated. And then, of course, the Senate issue. And I'm not trying to, you know, make sound like senators are all bad, but some of the stuff that goes on in the Senate is just kind of ridiculous at times. And so I think that's the most frustrating. You do your job. Let's just talk about the veto session. You know, we vetoed, I believe, 10 or 12 bills. I don't remember, Jason, you might know. I think that there were about, and Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong, like 200 budgetary items that were vetoed, and and there were maybe two, I, a few standalone bills that were vetoed. Yeah, I think I we've... Right. I, it was around 10 to, it was between 10 and 14. I have 10 it and 14, story, yeah. especially, but I can't think of it at the top of my head right now. Yeah, and so, I mean, you know, the frustrating part of that was I thought some of those override of the vetoes, and you know, just because the governor's Republican doesn't mean we're going to support everything he does or everything he says. You, you, you can't do that all the time. So there was some bills that we all thought was uh, was important, especially the one with the highway patrol and the increase in their pay and a few other things. And, you know, unfortunately, the Senate and their leadership and everybody just said, you know, turned the thumbs uh, down to us and didn't want to do anything. And that was probably the most discouraging thing about the whole thing about session is, you know, they didn't do anything. To build on that a little bit, the person through Senate tradition, it's the person who sponsored the bills is responsible for bringing it up for a veto. And that in itself was the Appropriations Committee Mm -hmm. chair, Lincoln Huff. Mm -hmm. So is it at all any kind of a comfort that like the budget chair was the one who didn't want to overturn it because maybe maybe there's other plans? I don't know if there's any like that sways you at all of like. I mean, that's not a great question. I mean, here's the thing. If they're going to address those issues in the budget for 2024, which, you know, we're we're not calendar year. We're July to June, I believe that's how it works. Yes. If there's some deals made and there's discussion about that, then I'm okay with that. But tell us, you know, don't let us put us out on an island, have us meet, vote these veto overrides, uh, and then and then not do anything if, if the budget chair, which obviously he was the one that made those decisions, if he has something in the works, then tell us. It's communication. I think sometimes only certain people get communicated certain things, and that's just the way it works. There's 163 of us in the House. They're not going to tell us all. So let's switch gears to uh, the next year's presidential caucus. Right. And I'm saying caucus because one of the things that many Missourians may not know is that local and state government officials are not administering next year's Republican and Democratic presidential contest. Mm-hmm. Instead, the parties are going to be 
in charge of paying for and running either what is essentially a primary on the Democratic side and what is a caucus on the Republican side. What do you think about this? Because I think, and as I'll explain in a minute, this is one of the rare times where Missouri Republicans and Missouri Democrats are extremely unhappy about this result. Well, I think it had to do with a lot of variables. First variable was, you know, when it comes to the local election authorities and the county clerks that administer the election, they had always, uh, you know, complained that, you know, the cost was, I don't know, eight or 10 million. They had a hard time getting their money uh, back sometimes. And so, I mean, the clerks as a whole and election authorities, they, I'm not saying all of them, but they just didn't want to really want to see the presidential primary. And that election year, you have four elections if you have, if you count the presidential primary. So there was a group of people they got it changed, and so, you know, going to a caucus, um, that's what some people wanted, and, you know, I voted both times to keep the, um, uh, the presidential primary in place. Uh, I thought as, the a cost, state, as a state run. As a state entity. run. Mm-hmm. Continue. And, and I, my thing was, and I was a clerk for four years, and so I heard, I heard both sides, and that was a tough. That was one of those tough votes for me because I was a clerk, and the clerks didn't want it, and I, you know, I did a lot of, um, I guess, for lack of a better term, did some, uh, you know, asking some questions in my district, surveys, and so on and so forth. And other than the sports gambling bill. That was the second most thing that people wanted to, you know, kind of talk about, and they wanted to have their vote in in February, uh, so they could vote for whoever they wanted for president. Now, what's going to be really uh, unsettling is when they find out that they're not going to have that vote, and it's a caucus process. It's going to get a little ugly, I think, because people. I don't think Jason people understand that there's not going to be an election in, in February. Both the Democratic and Republican parties push to have local election officials administer their presidential primaries. Why do you think this effort failed? You know, I guess if I knew that answer, I'd be making a bunch of money. Uh, I don't really know, Sarah. I, I mean, there it was a very hotly debated, hotly you know discussed topic. It was, you know, uh, it really went along party lines for the most part. I mean, it was just the idea was, well, do we want this or do we not want this? And and ultimately, you know, when they decided to not have the presidential preference primary and then to try to get it back on, you know, I think the the money I, I when I when I asked people why do they vote against it, they said, Well, we don't need to spend an extra eight or ten million dollars every four years. And again, to me in the big picture, as far as the budget size and everything, that's just a small drop in the bucket. I mean, it sounds like a lot of money, but in the big picture, it's just it's a very small amount of money. So I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, you know, people aren't going to have that right because remember, it's every four years, not every two years or every year. So you know, you're not going to have a chance to do this again till 2028 if it gets reinstated. Um, and, and so I, the caucus process, uh, it's not it's it's. It's fair, but it's it's not fair because you don't have to, you, everybody can't show up there. I want to like read you the reactions from both Missouri Republicans and Democrats to this reality. So the Democrats are basically having what is essentially a primary where sure. you can go into a location, you cast a vote, they end up compiling the votes, and whoever gets the most votes gets a certain amount of delegates. But mm-hmm. Chairman Russ Carnahan probably swore at me more than I've ever heard him swear before. He said, quote, the state-run primary is what we should have, but we don't. And so how do we make the best of a real pile of crap situation? Yeah. Um, and so what do you think about his his uh, upsetness at, 
at, at what he's been put through. Well, I mean, he wants he wants it to happen. It's not going to happen. Obviously, Russ has been in, in that office before, so he's going to have you know his viewpoint's going to be a little bit more, I guess, you know, strongly listened to. You know, uh, was he's a party chair, correct? Yes, basically. he's the party yeah. chairman now. So yeah. I mean, you know, that's his viewpoint, and uh, you know, I'm not going to say I agree or disagree with him, but you know, his, his reaction to that is, you got it didn't happen. We're going to do now what we can do to make the best of it, and and that's I guess in in essence his job or his responsibility to do that. On the Republican side, they're going to have a caucus that is similar to Iowa, where mm-hmm. you have to go to a location, you have to like physically gravitate toward the candidate that you want to, to vote for. And Chris Gron Howard, who wrote the rules for this caucus, said as, as follows, sure. uh, when the legislature didn't pass this, they disenfranchised every Republican who serves overseas in the military or can't be there that specific day. Because with a caucus, you have to not only be there on that day, but you have to be there at a specific time and you have to stay there. Is he correct there? Yes, he is correct. And, you know, I didn't even think about that. I do I do remember in the debating and talking to different ones, the thing about people overseas, people in the military, they're shunned and they can't vote because they don't have the ability to get their ballot. Like, you know, in any election, we send ballots overseas all the time as county clerks and election officials. So they get to participate if they want to in every election, even though they could be over in some faraway country and, and that. So it is it is kind of sad that they're not going to be able to participate because they're not going to be able to come back for one day to be able to pa- be a part of, of, of this process. But just think about it. There's a lot of people, not just military people, just your average person that votes on a regular basis, Jason. You know, let's say 40% vote, 50% vote. They're not going to be able to do that. And, and I think that by taking away their right to do that, I think that's where the rub is. Secretary of State Jay Ashcroft has said that he wasn't a fan of the old system because the parties were not bound by the results of the primaries. What do you make of that argument? Well, that's just, let me just say this, Sarah, and I'll be quick. I just That's just his opinion. I don't agree with it, but that's just his opinion. Um, and, you know, he's a Secretary of State, and so he he can he can chime in on something like that. I think we do need to be like, realistic about what's going on with the presidential race right now. Like, I know there's a lot of candidates running on the Republican side, but all the polls show that Donald Trump is leading by a wide margin. And I I don't see a scenario as long as he's in the race where he wouldn't win the Missouri caucus. And also, if Joe Biden is the only major candidate running on the Democratic side, even if it was a state state run uh, primary, I don't think the turnout would be very high on the Democratic side. But I do think it's a different story if, like, Biden decides not to run for re-election or Trump is no longer in the race for some reason. And then Missouri's caucus becomes a lot more important and there could be more people. Is there any concern that in that scenario, like, the parties are not going to be able to handle a high turnout election? Well, I mean, you know, those are a couple different scenarios. I think you're right on the first one if if the— if Trump and Biden are the two candidates, I think it's going to be a lower turnout. Everybody knows it's already going to happen, so you, you won't have as much. Um, yeah, well, well if, if somebody other than Biden would run or he says, I'm stepping down and then it's an open field, well, then, you know, Katie bar the door. I mean, I mean, that, that uh, to me, that would I, I'm not a de- I'm not a Democrat, but I think that would energize the Democratic Party and uh, and would get more people out there. So, you know, it, it's. It has, you know, we're not there yet. Lots of things can happen between now and then. I mean, it seems like 
you know, we're, or we're almost there. And to be honest with you, if you think about it, next November, we're going to have a new president or the same president. So, I mean, it's, 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 it's not that far away, yet it seems far away. You know what I'm saying, Jason? Things are going to expediate very quickly. And I'll be interested to see how the, you know, how it all turns out. If these presidential contests go poorly, do you think it could compel lawmakers to reinstate the state-run primaries for 2028? Uh, so are you asking me, do I think it'll come back in the future yep. to vote upon for it to be done? So yes. yeah, uh, yeah, I think it will. Will it pass? Different story. Depends on the viewpoints of the new legislature. You know, there's going to be 20 new House seats, 10 of the se- you know senior people are leaving, and you got another eight or 10 that are running for other positions like Senate and stuff. So, you know, you don't have a big class, but like our class was 42. Uh, that's going to be sophomores. So, you know, it depends upon their philosophies and what they do. But do I think it'll come back? Uh, I think you probably see it come back in a couple years to, to try to reinstate it for 28. I think it'll try. I think it'll be one more shot and it'll either pass or it won't pass. And then I think, let's say it doesn't pass, I think it'll be a dead issue and you'll never see it come back. We'll be right back after this quick break with State Representative Ken Waller. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio. And we're back on Politically Speaking with State Representative Ken Waller. He's a Republican from Herculaneum, one of the best city names in the state of Missouri. I like it. But you call it Herky. Well, I mean, it's an abbreviation. It's just for people that live in Herky, I guess. I, yeah. We I, just call it. It's just simpler. But, yeah, it's you know, try to spell Herculaneum whenever you got somebody on the phone. and or What do you live at? What's your address? Well, you know, I got a tough enough street name. Uh, that then when you get to the city name, they're like, you need to spell that for Is me. Is it like Olympus Drive or something? Well, so I live on Sanchi Circle, so okay. not that it's a crazy name, but then you go to Herculaneum and you got to explain it and spell it out and every letter, you know, H and E is an Edward, R is an Robert, you know, it's a little crazy. So we just abbreviated Herky. So one of the biggest changes that we've seen in Missouri elections in recent years is the advent of an in-person, no-excuse, absentee ballot period. You were Jefferson County clerk when this first came on the scene in 2022. Mm-hmm. How do you think this has been received by the public? Well, I think they love it. And if they had their choice and they could go to the ballot box and say, we want this to be permanently done, I think they'd want to do it. and They'd want to do it for the full six weeks. That's my opinion. Uh, some may not. Some view that as, as early voting. I look at it as when people come in, Jason, I'd say one out of every three people or couples that come in that want to vote, they're not telling you the truth. They're not going to be going to Hawaii or, or Cancun, you know, during the election day. I mean, we're talking about the day of the election, okay? That's what we're talking about. Not a week before the election. We're talking the election. So they come in. Yeah, I like to vote early. That's what they usually call it. And so I was a proponent uh, I don't know what a lot of other people thought, but I thought well, if you're going to have absentee voting and no excuse, let's just make it the full six weeks. I lobbied for that uh, when I was clerk, um, but it, it didn't happen that way. The, the consensus and the, I guess the thing that they got together, they made it two weeks. So first four weeks, is you have to have an excuse. The last two weeks, no excuse. But I'm telling you, that year that we had it done, uh, remember it was COVID, you know, going through all the COVID stuff and everything, it worked out wonderful. A big, big participation. We had 
I don't know, 40,000, 50,000 people that voted early. In 2020? Mm, yes, 2020. We're talking about 2020 when there mm-hmm. was uh, also an expanded mail-in yes, option as mail-in well. Option. Like, continue. Right. Well, no, yeah, you're right. That was, COVID, I'm sorry, the COVID year. So so then, you know, then they had, that was expanded then in 2022. Then it was two weeks. And we had a lot of people, we opened up our office and, and uh, made it available. So we expected a bigger turnout, which we did, you know. And uh, I think people loved it. They didn't have to come in and lie or make an excuse up, Jason. They said, I want to come in and vote. Okay, here, watch, give, me your ad, give me your card, give me your license. You know, remember the thing that tied to that was the uh, photo, photo ID. Which we'll get to in a minute. But, yeah. I, but, I, but, but I'm saying I think the two of those combined, it, it just ran so smooth. So I hope that we can expand it in the future. But the two year or the two weeks was definitely a help, and I, I like to see maybe expanded for another couple of weeks. That's just my opinion. I am on the uh, committee in the House on elections, so I will have a say as this thing comes down the road. Uh, and I would think I would be a supporter of that. There was conjecture, especially in 2020, that making it easier to vote would hurt Republicans. But in the 2020 and 2022 elections, when early voting was expanded in different ways, Republicans still won everything. Doesn't the show that absentee voting doesn't have a partisan tint to it? I agree 100 percent. I mean, you're going to vote for who you're going to vote for. And if you get to vote before Election Day versus, you know, the Democrat versus the Republican Party, you know, in our county, we're, we're highly Republican or have been the last 10 years where for 50 years we were highly Democrat. So, you know, I think it just got people out there. And let's just be honest there. We want more people to vote. It's a travesty when you have a, an April election and you got 12 percent of the people deciding for the other 88 percent. That's ridiculous. I don't know what the answer is in, in April elections, but the more people that can vote, the better. I think the better the process works. One of the other things that people probably need to watch out for that if the photo identification law is ever declared unconstitutional, then the in-person no excuse period goes away. So should lawmakers decouple the new excuse in-person absentee period from whether that law stands or falls? So, okay, so make sure I'm understanding what you're asking me. Do you you are you saying that should there be another law, another thing passed that separates the two? Yeah. Yes. Why? Well, so if the one is if the one is unconstitutional, then why should that jeopardize people that want to vote unexcused apps? I mean, you know, they, they don't have to have an excuse to come in. I I know why they put them together. Sometimes you can get two things together and get them passed because you got one side over here, once this, one side over there, once that. So maybe it's a compromise bill. But why, if if the photo ID law is struck down, why should that impact somebody coming in and voting with no excuse? I mean, I would I would see that as a as a positive because the clerks and the election authorities in the county or in the you know the state. I think they saw the the good positive things that happened by doing that, and it ran very smoothly. So I think they would be in total support of that. Democrats for years have argued that requiring a government-issued photo ID to vote will hurt the elderly, the poor, and traditionally marginalized racial groups. What do you think about that? I could understand their thinking. I think that, you know, if you if you got to show an ID on everything else and every place you go to, it seems like you got to get it out for everything. Then asking you to do it to 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 make sure you are who you say you are when you vote. I don't I don't have a personal issue with that. Now, before we go to the the election, there has been some lawmakers who want to require vote counting to be done by hand instead of machines. As a former election official for a county that is actually pretty large, if you were forced to count votes by hand instead of using a voting counting machine, 
How how difficult would that make your job, especially in a primary or general election year? Well, first of all, it make it very difficult. And you're talking about, you know, people wanting to know if it's done right. If you're counting them by hand, who's to say that it's done the right way? You know, machines are pretty accurate, you know, Jason. So if you all of a sudden do it by hand and you got, let's say, a thousand ballots in front of you, who's to say that the person is going to be fair and, and going to do it everything right and say that, that thousand votes, here's how people voted on that. I mean, I think it makes it worse, personally. I don't think, I hope they never go to that. Uh, you know, but, but you did, you know, some people have that mentality, you know. That, it would take forever. I'm telling you, I don't even know how long it would take before somebody would know who won, let's say, in our county. What do you think about St. Louis County, St. Charles? It'd be even longer. It could take weeks. And you're you're a no on that. No, I think, they, I think that's that doesn't make any sense. I mean, what what sense does it make? I, I think I'm going to just be. I said this to Senator Eigel, who's pushing this. I think this stems from the whole conspiracy theory that the vote counting machines somehow changed the election results and caused Donald Trump to lose. Mike Lindell has been kind of at the forefront of that theory, sure. and I don't think that there's really any proof that that happened, like at all. Yeah. But it, but I'm I'm telling you, like that. That issue has resonance amongst the grassroots Republicans because they probably like listen to people like Mike. Well, I'm, you say grassroots Republicans. There's a, a faction of Republicans who would agree with that. I don't know if they would all be grassroots. I mean, it depends on what you define grassroots Fair. as. You know what I'm saying? Yes. A, 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 a side of the party that believes in that is going to believe in that no matter what you tell them, no matter I'm a clerk, former clerk, I could tell them that's not possible or this, this is how it would do. And uh, they wouldn't they wouldn't listen to you. So let's shift gears to sure. to politics. Okay. So for a number of years, both parties spent a lot of time and effort trying to win votes in Jefferson County. Mm-hmm. And now it's a very Republican leaning. I don't know how much Eric Schmidt won Jeff by, but I would imagine it was double digits and it was never really in doubt. Why do you think there has been such a shift in the last few election cycles from it, Jeffco being purple, to now it is just super Republican? Great, great question. Get asked that all the time. I think it goes back to 10 to 15 years ago. Jefferson County was always a very conservative county. They liked their guns. They were pro-life. But the biggest factor was the union involvement in the county. And most all the people that ran for office, no matter what office it was, got union money. Eventually, the union saw, not just in the state legislature, but in other things, that the Republicans weren't the bad guys. They weren't all against right to work or, or for, I'm sorry, for right to work. So I think that started this, the switch, the Tea Party movement, and I think just the Obama years and then, you know, mainly the Obama years, that's when things started to switch and people started saying, I can't vote for the, the policies that that are democratic, that are, you know, they're for, you know, killing babies or taking away our guns. And in Jefferson County, that was not a good thing to say, even though they didn't say it. It was the mentality that, you know, this is what the uh, National Democratic Party is doing to us, and I don't want to be a part of that. So if Joe Smith's running as a Democrat, and, and Susie Smith's running as a Republican, I'm going to go ahead and run for the re- vote for the Republican. Then it started to change in within the Republican, uh, the uh, union, I say the union uh, rank and file. You know, they did do some surveys and said, you know, wh- what would you vote on? And, you know, this is probably back 10, 8 or 10 years ago. And they said, well, we would vote more Republican uh, because we don't agree with some of these things. We don't want our guns taken away. We don't want to kill babies. And I could probably list a couple other ones. But those are the two main things that our county always stood for. 
And so it was just a paradigm shift. And the Tea Party movement in, I guess, 9 and 10 just kind of pushed it that way. And it's, it's just, I mean, we had people that switched parties, that changed parties, that judges lost a couple of elections as Democrats. And the judges behind them said, I'm not going to have that happen to me. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and switch to being a Republican. So there is not one elected official in Jefferson County that's a Democrat. It does. That's crazy. It is crazy. crazy. Although I did talk with Senator Paul Wheeland, I think in 2017, he was Mm -hmm. like, it's only going to be a matter of time before we we hold every office in Jeffco. And I was like, wow, that's pretty uh, confident. And Mm -hmm. you can call him a Wheeland Stradamus because he was totally right on that. How important do you think Jeffco will be for the governor's race or Josh Hawley's reelection bid? Well, I don't think Josh Hawley has a whole lot to worry about. I mean, I know there's a couple candidates that are running, uh, Lucas Kuntz, and I can't remember the other person's name, but I think Josh Hawley's got enough of a, of, of a, of a uh, whatever you want to call it. Uh, I think he's got enough to get him to the uh, to the finish line. Uh, he may not win double digits, but it really doesn't matter if he won by one vote or 100,000. Uh, I think he's going to win re-election. Um, genuinely, he's well-liked by most people, despite votes he's taken or things he said. He, I think overall people relate to him. Governor's race, you know, I uh, I think, and, and Jason and I talked about this before we got on here, I think it's Mike Kehoe's, I think it's Mike Kehoe's race if he can get past the Ashcroft name. So if he can get in these areas that are rural and he can get into these areas and win by large, large amounts, uh, you know, the Ashcroft name is very strong, has been for years. Um, uh, there is probably a fairly distinct difference between Jay and his and his and his, and his dad. So uh, you know, I don't know the Eigel. Uh, you know, him, Eigel being in it, I think that's probably my personal opinion. That's going to hurt Ashcroft. That's my opinion. Somebody else could disagree with me, and I could I could probably listen to their disagreement. But I think it's going to be a close race. I mean, three people. It could take well, Jason thirty eight percent to win. Maybe I don't know. Yeah, forty. Uh, I think if 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 Mike Kehoe can get the votes out 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 of the areas that are urbanized, the you know St. Louis, Kansas City, you know Springfield and Columbia in that area, I think if he can get those votes in the outlying areas and win by large margins, uh, which I think is a possibility, then I think uh, I think he might pull it off. Uh, if Ashcroft won, I wouldn't be surprised. Um, but I think it's going to be a really close race. So if the voters in Jefferson County see the Republican nominee for governor as stridently anti-union, could that give someone like Democrat Crystal Quaid an opening to, I'm not, I'm not saying she's going to win the county, but could she win some votes back just based off that issue? Well, she might. I mean, who ran for, who was a Democrat that ran four years ago? Uh, 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 Nicole, a, Nicole Galloway. Yeah, yeah, so she got some. So the answer is, yeah, they could, but not nothing to pull back. And it won't be because of union money or the union people. Again, I still think the mentality is they're going to vote more Republican than they are going to be voting Democrat, no matter who the governor candidate is. So one thing that may have accelerated Jefferson County's shift, as you mentioned, is Donald mm-hmm. Trump. Mm-hmm. He got more than 66% of the vote in 2020 in Jefferson County. Why is he so popular in, in, in Jefferson County? Well, I don't know if it's just Jefferson County he's popular. I just think the popularity that he has, he's just, people can just relate to him. You know, he, he, he doesn't really care. I mean, he just does what he wants to do. And are I'm not saying. People, are most people billionaire developers from New York well, in Jefferson County? Well, let's, let's not talk about what he does and how much money he makes. Let's just talk about the personality. The personality of 2016 cost him the election in 2020. 
Let's just be honest. I mean, he PO'd enough people uh, after being in there for four years, but you still have that base of people. And they're like, I can relate to that guy. That guy says exactly what I'm thinking. You know what I'm saying? Which is crazy. I mean, you know, obviously he, he, he had a base of people that, he, that, that didn't like him and, and thought he was too arrogant. And I'm not just talking about women. I mean, so, you know, he lost to, to Biden. I don't think people saw that coming, but it happened. And Biden won. So if this is a rematch, man, oh, man, Katie barred the door because I don't know. Who knows? People ask me, you think he's going to win? Well, he's going to win his primary because nobody's going to beat him. Is he going to win the general? You know, I don't know. You know, it's too early to say no whether he's going to win the general. Absolutely, you don't know. I, I once tweeted. I should never have tweeted this. That Donald Trump will never win a primary or caucus. And in in 2016, boy, that was one of my bad predictions because uh, he definitely won, and then he won the presidency. Well, I think I think what's happened, Jason, is all the stuff that they're going through the the lawsuits and the indictments and everything. I think in in a lot of people's eyes, they're trying to get him. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not saying they're factual or not, but it just raises his level of people liking him in that regard. You see what I'm saying? You keep fighting him, Donald. You keep fighting him. You know, uh, I think it's raised in the party now. It's raised his. Uh, his numbers. But I think that this is a question either for 24 or 28, mm-hmm. because in 28, he's not going to be the nominee anymore no, no. Uh, at all. No. Even, whether he wins or loses, right. I don't see him running again when he's like 86 years old. Yeah, right. And if he wins, he can't serve another term. Right. Do you think that when a, nom- a Republican nominee is not Donald Trump, that you could see the state's politics revert to a more competitive trajectory? So the question you're asking me is, do I think that Donald Trump um, uh, made it more Republican? And, in, and if he's not around, it's not as Republican. Is that pretty yeah, much the question? You, 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 have, you have deciphered my wordy question yeah, exactly. That's kind of, well, getting a little scary since I've only met, I've met a few times. So, uh, boy, that's, that's a tough talk. I would say that, remember, when, when, when things started changing was 210. Not just in Jefferson County, but just kind of started overall. In 16, that's when it really hit the next level. Could it be a little bit of an adjustment backwards a little bit? I think you're seeing that, Jason, in some of the areas, St. Charles, some of the areas of St. Charles, some of the areas of St. Louis, tight races. I'm talking about house races yeah. and even center races. So so will you see a reverting back? I don't think you see a reverting back, but will it become more competitive in some of those areas? Yes. When it comes to when it comes to rural areas, and I would call Jefferson County rural for the most part, I don't think you're gonna see if Donald Trump's not involved in somebody else, I don't don't see it reverting back and making much of a difference in the future, personally. Well, Representative, thank you so much for coming on Politically Speaking, and we hope to have you back in subsequent years to talk about other issues that are popping up in the legislature. Well, I'll be available anytime, and thank you for having me, and it's been a pleasure. For all of our stories, go to stlpr.org. Politically Speaking is a product of St. Louis Public Radio, which is a part of the University of Missouri-St. Louis. Yay! Uh, how can people follow you on social media or any place that you want to be found on the Internet? Do you have any social media? Oh, no, yeah, other than Facebook. I'm sorry. I'm sitting here looking out the window. Other than Facebook, you know, face, uh, Ken Waller for state rep. I don't. I'm going to probably uh, – I'm discussing and, you know, I'll probably have – I thought I might have an announcement today, but I'd say there's a pretty good chance I'm running for re-election, you know. But I had a couple of uh, areas and a couple of places that I'd looked at in the private sector and one in the public sector that I thought I might take, you know. But I'm like, I, I think I think I'm going to decide to run again. I'll sure let you know in the next couple of weeks – 
uh, thought, like I said, I thought I might have an announcement today, but that's where I'm leaning. I love my job. I love going to Jeff City, and I love representing the people in the 114th District. And, Sarah, it's a pleasure to be able to get to meet you, not in person, but on the radio. Thank you very much, and until next time, so long. St. Louis Public Radio's The Gateway gives you the day's news first thing every weekday morning. From the ever-evolving relationship between St. Louis City and County to developments in the Missouri and Illinois state capitals and reports from our correspondents in Rolla and the Metro East, we put it all in a roughly 10-minute package with clarity and context. Download The Gateway wherever you get podcasts.